0: In the fall of 2019, viewers of Good Morning America awoke to hear the following. Alexa, dim the lights. Okay. A new warning this morning for anyone using Alexa, Siri, Google Home, or any of those wildly popular voice-controlled digital assistants. Researchers claim they found a flaw that allows hackers to access your device from hundreds of feet away, giving them the ability to potentially unlock your front door, even start your car. It's 943. Sounds crazy, but it's true. The flaw uses light, say, from a laser pointer pen, to simulate speech. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. Every day we're surrounded by tiny sensors that we more or less take for granted. From the tiny microphones in our mobile devices and digital assistants to the light-detecting radars in our cars. These are single-purpose semiconductors, right? Maybe not. There's a group of bleeding-edge hackers who are looking at secondary channels of attack such as using pulsing light to imitate voice commands or specific frequencies of sound to simulate specific motion-related vibrations. And soon, it's possible that these hackers may be able to demonstrate how these and other basic laws of physics can be used to take control of our digital assistants, our medical devices, even our cars. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, An original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing the weird science of how the physics of light and sound, not keyboards or code, can be used to compromise electronic devices and the consequences of that in the real world. Say you're sitting at home one night and all of a sudden the lights dim, your garage door opens, and loud music starts playing. Music you really don't like. You think maybe it's the device malfunctioning, but really it's the kids across the street playing with a laser pointer.
1: That's one of the consequences. Very general purpose. You shine a laser and you pulse it on and off at a particular rate and uh, it causes the microphone to hear clear, intelligible speech that the adversary controls.
0: That's Dr. Kevin Fu, one of the discoverers of this phenomena. He's a researcher at the University of Michigan and has been pioneering a new category of acoustic interference attacks.
1: There are all sorts of ways to turning sensors into unintentional demodulators, which is fancy speak for like You know, the the kid who can hear radio stations with their braces by accident. You can almost think of it as like uh, an acoustic sleight of hand. This is all about trying to prevent these secondary channels of an adversary injecting false information into a sensor.
0: In this case, the sensor is a tiny microphone which consists of a thin membrane. As sound hits the membrane, it vibrates, like our eardrum. Except instead of signals to our brain, the membrane triggers an electrical response. How much or how little charge it sends depends on the sound. So a microphone is looking for sound, which is a wave. But what if we have a light, which in the realm of physics can also be a wave? Light isn't one of the intended inputs for the microphone, but it just so happens to work.
1: First of all, there are intentional receivers and then there are unintentional receivers. So if you're talking about intentional receivers, like, hey, I have a light sensor. Would you please tell me how bright the room is? that's one thing but with our our laser work uh, the laser work was about a microphone and a microphone's not designed to receive light but it turns out it does and so most of our work is about sensors that don't advertise being able to sense other modalities like sound or light but do
0: so you're probably wondering that must be hard training a laser to emulate human speech actually it's not
1: in fact it's so easy we've demonstrated this at an elementary school museum where the museum shows kids how to use lasers to inject voices. Uh, I show six-year-old children how to put their voice in here uh, with a laser beam. It's, it's, It's really not that hard once you understand the physics effectively creating an optical uh, AM radio station. That's effectively what we're doing. We're modifying the amplitude of um, the current or the intensity of the laser. That causes a vibration on the membrane of the microphone uh, that is then misinterpreted as speech. The physics would be, we're turning a light on and off fast. Every time the light hits it, it causes a little shaking. Your vocal cords shake, and that's how we speak. That's all we're doing.
0: So every time something really cool like this comes along, I often wonder, did they expect to find something? I mean, how does one happen upon the unintended consequence like this?
1: The, the one on the light source for microphones in particular, I think you have to give a lot of credit, Takashi Shugawara from Tokyo. He was one of the collaborators on the project, and he had this idea of using lasers to inject Things into microphones. I can't speak for him, but I think a lot of it is just about sheer curiosity. Uh, I know he was coming from a background of side channels, and um, lasers have been used in the past to induce faults. But I'm not aware of any research before before this that would use a laser to deliberately control the output of a sensor. You could consider this a right side channel attack, I suppose, but usually when someone says side channel they're they're assuming it's about reading information out and this is about putting information in so it depends we're we're on the frontier we're inventing new things new new subdisciplines so not 100% clear
0: this is bleeding edge research so much so that there's little in the way of tools that can be used in the lab
1: We've even had to build our own laser interferometers uh, in the laboratory to do measurements. The tools are rather blunt. You know write a program in MATLAB. Uh, <laughs> there aren't tools you can buy right now. so we're we're th- this is classic r and d And you know I would expect there'll be some tool sets probably in the next five to ten years. But you know in academia, we're always working on the the very early stage of the technology.
0: So, how do we get here? How does one even start to think about these types of attacks?
1: I had been working for some time on things involving light. I am just always curious how sensors transduce the analog into the digital. And from my experience in computer security, I know most failures happened at the boundaries between abstractions where there's undefined behavior. And this felt like an area ripe for undefined behavior.
0: Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with boundaries. The transition from one system to another has always been one of the weakest links in the security chain.
1: So in my experience, most new classes of vulnerabilities, um, not just your next buffer overflow, but entirely new thinking about um, entirely new vulnerable surfaces, typically happen at boundaries. And and there's a, a there's some really good reasons why this, this is... Um, it's like, where do you go to fish? Well, um, you know, you look for where there's going to be a good
0: supply. Boundaries are the classic go-to minefield for discovering new software vulnerabilities. It turns out it's the same here with micro electromechanical system sensors.
1: The reason why it's interesting is you typically have two different groups of engineers on either side of the interface. And anytime you have an interface, even if it's well-defined, even if there's a specification, engineers start to assume things about the other side. So there's often an uh, abdication of responsibility for certain things. And the classic example would be the buffer overflow, are you bounds checking? Whose job is it to do bounds checking? Is it the caller or the callee? Well, in this case in the analog sensor world, uh, it's all about well, how do we know that the device is actually sending out uh, actual data of the sensed environment versus some tertiary way that an adversary is able to trick the sensor into Uh, falsely transducing information.
0: So think about all the sensors we have today in our homes, in our cars, in our cities, and the many more that we'll have tomorrow. That's a lot of sensor data, and therefore, plenty of opportunity for mischief. But before we get too deep, what are transducers, and how exactly do you transduce information?
1: a transducer um, in layman's terms or engineer's layman's terms will take some kind of physical phenomena something about our world maybe how light is it in the room what is the temperature um, but it'll take some kind of uh, phenomena uh, and then create electronic patterns that can be interpreted by a computer to represent uh, that phenomena so uh, again it might be um, giving a digital readout on temperature Um, But perhaps, in reality, what the sensor's doing is looking at the voltage differential between two different metals to try to interpolate what's the temperature in the room. Um, Another example might be uh, acceleration. Um, You'd like to know how fast a car is going, Um, and so you create a sensor that transduces uh, certain physical phenomena into uh, analog or digital values representing your acceleration. uh, one example would be uh, a MEM semiconductor that um, effectively changes its capacitance based upon how it's accelerating through space. Um, but the, the key take-home of all these transducers is that it's a proxy for reality. It's it's a, uh, 99% of the time, yeah, temperature sensors telling you the temperature, but there are other ways to cause that sensor to transduce um,
0: different value. So these MEMS semiconductors, these chips in our phones and in our vehicles, they're just creating proxies for the real world. Let's look at a common sensor, a light detection ranging sensor, also known as a LIDAR. It's a chip-based radar that uses light signals, and there are actually several of them embedded in the bumper and side panels of most new cars. What LIDAR does is it tells an advanced driver assistance system, or ADAS, how close or how far an object is within its field of view. Think pre-collision warning. An attack on this chip has definite consequences on the future of driving, particularly with autonomous vehicles.
1: Oh, yes. In fact, uh, we have a number of papers recently published uh, just uh, last uh, last winter, actually, on LIDARs and autonomous vehicles um, and how to use lasers to uh, take control of that and what are some of the limits. So it's, it's extremely relevant to autonomous vehicles.
0: And really, we're talking about any device with a real-world sensor. So this type of attack is going to affect a variety of fields and a variety of use cases.
1: It does. Medical devices, uh, space, uh, you name it. Anything kinetic where there's a feedback loop, where there's a sensor telling a computer to change some kind of cyber-physical system, uh, there's going to be a problem.
0: So if the sensor is a proxy for the real world, a boundary between that and the digital world, and an adversary is actively manipulating the data that the device receives, it's got to affect machine learning and AI as well. You know, garbage in, garbage out.
1: Um, It does impact AI. In fact, you cannot separate this from the AI machine learning layers. There's a huge amount of interesting work going on since the sensor now doesn't just go to any old computer, but the computer's doing some kind of machine learning-based classification or computer vision. It creates a host of sort of intellectually challenging sort of geometry problems. But at the end of the day, it's a very practical problem because cars are ubiquitous and you want to make sure that an adversary with a laser pointer pen can't simply uh, cause havoc with an autonomous vehicle.
0: Okay. Shouldn't all this be covered within the SDLC, the Software Development Life Cycle, I mean, it should be in the design phase under threat modeling, you know, where developers and engineers first need to articulate all the inadvertent attacks such as these.
1: Uh, lack of a threat model is part of the problem, and there's, there's no bad guy here in terms of the designing and manufacturing. This is just a new area, and it's sort of out of scope uh, with most professionals um, thinking. Uh, nobody would have thought that if you just happen to shake a phone a certain way, you can cause it to have deliberately false accelerometer values. Um, And we look at the fundamental physics um, because it turns out uh, certain frequencies of sound and light um, happen to pass through this sort of undefined behavior at the interface between the the chip and and other components. Um, And the same is also true for sound. Uh, so some of our work on, uh, accelerometers, for instance, um, it's supposed to just sense change in velocity. Why, why would it be able, why could an adversary control it by just sending sound waves to it? Well, it turns out that materials have resonant frequencies, just like an opera singer can break a wine glass if you hit just the right note. Um, and so by analyzing these resonant frequencies, you can actually trick the accelerometer into um, deliberately having false acceleration just by picking the, the right frequency.
0: So for example, you can use sound waves to hack your Fitbit and reach your step goal through acoustic interference alone. That's crazy.
1: From that, you can actually derive some good news because the moment you start to have sensible threat models, you can start to have good defenses. And so Um, I would say there's quite a lot of opportunity for quick wins here by having reasonable threat models.
0: In 2018, Kevin and a group of researchers found that intentional acoustic interference, sound, can produce unusual errors in the mechanics of magnetic hard disk drives. This, they said, could lead to damage in the integrity and the availability in both hardware and software, such as file system corruption and operating system reboots. They further found that an adversary without any special purpose equipment can co-op built-in speakers or nearby emitters to cause persistent errors in computer systems. You would think this research must be terrifying to the semiconductor industry. It turns out they've been pretty great about it.
1: Um, I would say the interactions with the semiconductor manufacturers have been universally positive. I would say 99% of the conversations end up with, oh... We never thought of that. That's pretty clever. Thanks for bringing this to our attention. What do you think we should do? And I'm, I'm really pleased, especially uh, one of the manufacturers, I would say is the most progressive uh, analog devices. Um, they make all sorts of sensors for automobiles and um, uh, other applications. But um, when we found a problem in accelerometers across pretty much all the manufacturers, they had probably the best response um, in that they sent out a, a document through a U.S. cert that explained the physics behind how they recommend their customers defend against these problems, um, and it was so detailed, it, it went into some of the trigonometry and the sine waves, and for instance, they talked about, hey, if you put this um, accelerometer on one of your circuit boards, make sure to cut a trench around it and drill your holes here and here, because that changes the sound waves to make it harder for an adversary to get things in. Um, so that, that, was, um, that was a positive experience.
0: Given these mem sensors, these chips like microphones, accelerometers, and LIDAR are already out in the field, in our devices, embedded in our streets and cities, what are some of the mitigations?
1: There's sort of two approaches, short-term and long-term. Short-term, there are some bolt-on defenses that are rather brittle, uh, and they also... I wouldn't say give a very satisfying guarantee, but they act as sort of a band-aid. So for instance, um, and and it's very application specific, so for instance, we found some problems in hard drives where you could uh, disable hard drives by sending certain sound waves. Um, And um, yeah, it turns out there are certain things you can do with the firmware. You can actually do a firmware update to a hard drive. Uh, to change effectively change some of the differential equations and how it it handles um, damping out vibrations. Um, And yeah, you can stop an adversary um, from um, causing your hard drive to stop or get corrupted, Um, but it's very specific to the hard drive. It it doesn't solve the problem in general. Um, And so at the end of the day, the long-term solution is really about first starting off with the threat models, And then, what I advocate for is a new way of delivering information from sensors to the microprocessor. uh, And that is having uh, auxiliary data, or you might even call it a tag, uh, such that the applications and the software stack can verify uh, the trustworthiness of the sensor output before making an action. It'd be great. If an autonomous vehicle, before it makes a turn or hits the brakes or hits the accelerator, could have some measurable confidence that whatever sensor value it got is not maligned. And so part of this is going to be about changing the semiconductors to have these additional outputs uh, as verification checks on the trustworthiness of the sensor output.
0: So we know that light and sound can affect some sensors, and we know the physical material makes some semiconductors more or less vulnerable to attack. And it sounds like there are active mitigations available already. So we've mastered acoustic interference, right? It it really is
1: still a lot of mystery. Um, There's a lot of questions on, well, why does this work? Um, We know how it works. But um, we've talked with a number of physicists, we've talked with the manufacturers, and it's a head-scratcher. Um, so I think there's still a lot of very interesting science and engineering to do here, um, just because it, it's, it's, it's so rare to find a problem with these kind of fundamental unknowns. Um, and it's, uh, I, I think, driven by just curiosity that we've gotten here, and um, I think
0: there's a, there's a lot more to learn. So some of this, for example, why it works, is not known, at least not now.
1: The closest analogy I can think is brain surgery. Um, there's a lot of things done in brain surgery. We don't know why it works. It works. Um, and uh, there's, there's just huge gaps in, in our knowledge. Um, so I, it could be 10 years, could be 20 years. Who knows? Um, but we are moving forward in the laboratory, designing carefully controlled experiments, classic null hypotheses. Um, So classic, I think a lot of these will make great high school homework assignments in the future. So it's not necessarily rocket science, but if you put all the layers together, it becomes complicated um, rather quickly.
0: So the good news is, is that what we're talking about today isn't yet in the realm of active threats. So there's plenty of time to work out more mitigations.
1: So we work in the laboratory. We work on future threats 10, 20 years out. Uh, So I'm not aware of any... um, of these in the wild. Um, But I view this as a way to get out in front. These are obvious problems once you look at it. Um, And the really hard part is, okay, how do we defend these things? How do we design these problems out? Um, And so that's where we spend a lot of our mindshare, thinking about how do we change the interfaces? How do we change some of the threat models such that we don't have to worry about these problems?
0: Meanwhile, it's great material for future black hats and DEFCONs and future episodes of The Hacker Mind. But it's also a great reminder that just because something is built to perform one way doesn't mean that a hacker won't come along and maybe get that device to work in another way. That's what hackers do. They think differently, like shining a light on a microphone, or using sound to fake Fitbit steps, or disable your hard drive. Don't say I didn't warn you. Hey, before you go... Remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. For The Hacker Mind, I remain your master of all things light and sound, Robert Famosi.